exploring that name as we're working our way through the Gospel of John. And so we're continuing in our series today through that John series. Today we are in chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, you can take them out and turn to chapter 9 of John. Today we're calling our message, Blind Man's Bluff. Blind Man's Bluff. How many of you played that kid's game, Blind Man's Bluff? You might remember that, right? Remember they, they uh, put the the blindfold on the child and then you're out in a big empty area and somebody's it, right? And it is blind and they have to try to catch people, right? You remember what the kids did? They'd tease them, yell at them, we're over here and then they'd move because they could see and it couldn't see. And then finally, if they could catch somebody, touch them, that person became it. Well, you know, whether it's a self-imposed disability in a kid's game or actual blindness or declining eyesight in our physical life. Blindness is debilitating, isn't it? Certainly not something that we seek after. I read recently about uh, a 67-year-old woman. She was scheduled for routine cataract surgery due to some blurred vision that she had. She assumed it was just her, her aging that had caused her eye troubles, but the real cause of the discomfort was much more concerning. The ophthalmologist in the case said that the woman hadn't really complained about any eye pain before the operation, but when the anesthesiast at the hospital started to numb her eye for the surgery, he found a cluster of contact lenses. And the doctor said he, he put a, the tool in there, the speculum into the eye to hold the eye open. And as he put in the anesthetic, he noticed a, a blue mass under her top eyelid. And eventually they found a group of 27 contact lenses. The doctor says, we were shocked. We've never seen anything quite like this. The woman had been wearing these disposable contacts for like 35 years. And so it's unclear how long they'd been gathering there in her eye. Sometimes she would try to remove a contact from her eye and she couldn't find it and she just figured that she dropped it somewhere. But it was actually getting stuck in her eye with all the others. And, and instead of going to the doctor and seeing the person that could fix her blurred vision, she just kind of lived with it and tried harder. Right? She kept adding something else, thinking that that would uh, help the problem. But what the woman really needed was not something added to her life, but she needed something removed. Well, in today's text, in John chapter 9, we meet a man who was born blind. And he, too, had a problem that needed to be removed. I think it's one of the more interesting stories in the Gospels. This man is, you know, maybe one of the more colorful characters recorded in Scripture, even though he lived in darkness. In his encounter with Jesus, we see Christ's attitude towards disease and suffering and the greatest need that every person has, which is to receive true spiritual eyesight. We've sang several songs about that today. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. And hopefully as we work through this text today, we will examine our own spiritual eyesight as we focus our vision on Jesus, the light of the world. And so I want to consider several portions of this text in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. But the first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus meets 
an immediate need. He meets an immediate need. Let's take notice of just two or three things about this, this man. Although we never learn his name in the text, he apparently was someone that was known to the people in his community there in Jerusalem. Now, I also thought it's interesting. He didn't approach Jesus. Nobody brought him to Jesus. He didn't ask to be healed. All of his life, he had lived in darkness. He was blind from birth. He had no idea what it meant to see. His physical condition was every bit as hopeless as, as, as if he had no eyes or no hands or no arms. He, he was a beggar. He was supported solely on the generosity of other people. And as we read through the entire story, it's, it's evident that this man, though, was no dummy. He was intelligent. He was able. He was a logical thinker. And he even was a skilled communicator. But he really had no hope of ever seeing. Two things, though, happen to him in the course of this chapter. He is healed physically, and then, after going through kind of an incredible gauntlet of challenges, he is healed spiritually as well. So I want to begin by reading together the first part of our text, verses 1 through 6. The words are on the screen. Let's read this together. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am in the light of the world. Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Pretty remarkable story, isn't it? All kinds of interesting little tidbits in here to think about. Of course, we've talked about how John uh, frequently uses the idea of light and darkness all through the gospel of John. And we see that in this text as well. You know, I was thinking, I think Jesus was in a hurry that day. At least as best as I can tell. You remember just prior to this event, back in chapter 8 in John, Jesus had been involved in a major, very serious confrontation with the Jewish religious leaders. He had made really bold claims about himself, about his relationship with the Father in heaven. In fact, he had claimed to be one with the Father. He had claimed to be greater than Abraham. And he had said that these religious leaders that he was having the confrontation with were sons of the devil. And then he made his boldest claim of all that day, a claim to divinity. Remember in John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, I am, Jehovah, Yahweh, that's me. And at that point, the Pharisees began to run around and pick up as many rocks as they could because they were going to stone Jesus to death for blasphemy. He had just applied the holy personal name of Jehovah God to himself. And at that point, he escapes from them somehow. We don't know exactly how, by slipping away through the crowd. So 
Jesus is not exactly relaxed as he's leaving the temple. He's not probably exactly available for a lot of heavy counseling at that moment as he's heading out through the temple gate. But apparently, it was in this context that this this fellow, this blind man who customarily sat by one of the exits of the Jewish temple begging, was approached by Jesus. Again, I want you to note that it was Jesus who approached the man. And he didn't engage the man in any kind of prolonged discussion, did he? He didn't ask him any questions as far as we know. He didn't tell the man to follow him and become his disciple. He didn't uh, talk with the man about his past or his sins. He didn't tell him like he did to Nicodemus that he had to be born again. You see, all of that would come later in his relationship. What did Jesus do? He simply made a little poultice out of damp clay following an ancient custom, and he applied it to the man's eyes, and then he gave him an assignment. There was something about his words, or the manner of the Lord, though, that convinced that blind beggar to do what this stranger, Jesus, had just told him to do. And so he went, and he came back seeing. But then Jesus just moves on without even waiting to see the outcome. It wasn't until later that Jesus sought the man out a second time and then spoke to him about who Jesus was. And it's at that point that the man worshipped Jesus and became a convinced disciple of Christ. I just wonder if maybe we can learn something from this initial part of this encounter. Though this man had many needs, clearly, Numerous issues, a multitude of problems. Jesus seeks him out and meets the most obvious and immediate need first. The man's physical blindness. Now, you and I aren't going to smear saliva in the dirt and rub it on some stranger's eye to heal him. Don't try that, okay? I don't recommend that. But, But, like Jesus, we can have an awareness of people in our sphere of influence. Who is it that you are observing as you walk through life? Who are you noticing that has an immediate need? And what are you doing to meet that immediate need? You know, so often the very first step in introducing someone to the good news of Christ will be to meet an immediate need. But then Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? And neither should we. So next, I want you to notice that not only does Jesus meet an immediate need, but then he addresses a greater need, a greater need. The disciples couldn't, couldn't bear to let this opportunity slip away. They, they were a lot like you and I would have been. All of their lives, they've wondered about this age-old problem, the problem of pain. You know, if God is a good God, he's all-powerful, Why on earth would God allow a person to be struck with such a problem like blindness? Now, it was easy enough to understand if this guy had been some sort of despicable person. You know, he would deserve to be punished. But this poor guy was totally blind from the very beginning. When he came out of the womb, he couldn't see. He lived in total darkness. And so the disciples raised the question, to their teacher, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? 
because that was the, uh, the, the prevailing attitude of the day. The idea is if you had some bad thing in your life, that God was mad at you. And you must have messed up or your parents messed up. It's somebody's fault and you better fix it. That was just kind of the prevailing idea that was very common in Jesus' day. So how did Jesus respond? Well, he could have explained that although God is, is perfectly good and all-powerful, this world in which we live, which he made, has been corrupted by sin, man's sin. It's a fallen, a bent, a broken place in which there are many selfish and, and harmful people, in which there are millions of types of dangerous bacteria and viruses, and all of these forces are at work to make this a, a dangerous environment in which all people, evil or wonderful, are equally at risk. No one is safe from danger. After all, he himself, Jesus, God's own son, was soon to be murdered here in this world. It's an ugly world out there. So Jesus could have focused on that. But he didn't, did he? He could have said, all of us look to heaven as the only perfect environment. Just focus on that. Jesus could have said that, but he didn't. Or he could have explained that, yes, there are some situations in which the sin of the parent brings pain or grief or sickness into the life of a child. We certainly see that in our day as well, don't we? The case of children who experience abuse or neglect or illness because of the terrible choices of their parents. Jesus could have gone into that, but he didn't, did he? He could have explained that all suffering is not alike. He could have said something like, well, th there are no pat answers, guys. Here are several different things for you to think about. Could have done that. He could have said, suffering has a place in God's plan, in the lives of certain people in certain situations. He could have done that. But he didn't do that either. It looks like perhaps Jesus missed an opportunity he could have preached an unbelievably great sermon that would have gone down in history as the most penetrating analysis with the, of the problem of pain that is ever given. I mean, he is the son of God. He knew the answer to the problem. So much of our own inner pain, our bewilderment, our misunderstanding of this world could have been for once and all settled if Jesus had just preached that sermon that perhaps his disciples had wanted him to preach. We might ask questions like, why did my father die at such a young age? Why did the young mother and child die so cruelly in an, in an automobile accident? Why that avalanche? Why that earthquake? Why that flood? Why that little boy without arms? Why Auschwitz? Why Afghanistan? Why cancer? We could go on and on and ask questions. And Jesus could have explained it all. But he didn't. He didn't. And as a result, we still, 2,000 years later, only have an imperfect, incomplete understanding of the answers to the problem of pain. Often we still find ourselves perplexed, don't we? Grief-stricken in the midst of tragedies that befall people in our lives, in our community, 
in our nation, in our world. But instead of pat answers, instead of deep theological musings, what what did Jesus do in this situation? In verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not this man who sinned. It was not his parents. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. In essence, Jesus said, the only thing I'm going to tell you right now, guys, is that in this situation, there is an opportunity. An opportunity for God to be glorified. It's an opportunity to show what God can do. You see, brothers and sisters, beyond the immediate need that we always focus on, the the physical suffering, the illness, the financial crisis, the heartache, the disappointment, beyond those immediate needs, there is a greater need. And this is an important point for us to understand. Friends, when we see tragedy, whether it's sickness or, or natural disaster or whatever it might be, we, we might be able to discern reasons why it's happening. We may be able to, to lay the blame on, on someone or some outside cause, maybe. We may even be able to see the hand of God in it. Or we might not. It might even seem to us that God is absent or removed or unresponsive when we pray. Why is that? It's frustrating at times, isn't it? And it may be that the only answer we will get is this. This thing has happened. It's happened. Don't dwell on the why. Rather, it has happened. It just has. And having happened, we now have an opportunity to see God at work. The Lord just may be addressing a greater need than we are aware of. And that, I think, really is a much better answer. You see, folks, when when we solely focus on the immediate needs and insist on immediate responses, we are setting ourselves up for continuing frustration. I want an answer, and I want it now. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God about this or that. Who are we to have that kind of arrogance? Perhaps God has a greater need in mind. So we can say, well, what a shame that Jesus didn't give us an answer to our questions about the problem of pain. And leave it at that. Or we can say, Here is an opportunity to see what God can do. As I was thinking about this this week and reading a bit, I, I came across this statement. Sickness and suffering are opportunities for us to show the love and compassion of God. I like that statement. People who are suffering around us provide us an opportunity to show the love and compassion of God by caring for them, by praying for them, by working for their healing. You know, it just may be that God is calling you to be the medicine. Think about that for a moment. 
It might be that God is calling you to work for the relief of their suffering, their affliction, their sorrow, their pain, their loss, their disappointment. All of those give us an opportunity as God's people to demonstrate the love of God to people who are suffering. And in doing so, we meet a greater need, the need to reveal God's glory. Many people, like the blind man in our story, are far too overcome by their physical or emotional suffering to be open to give their lives to Christ. But when they are loved, when they're cared for, when they sense the compassion of Christ through our deeds of of mercy, then they may, like this blind man, eventually come to know Jesus and find spiritual healing as well as some physical relief. Now there are, are so many lessons to be learned from this encounter with Jesus and the blind man. But really, I want to I just explore now what I think is the most important one. And that is that after meeting an immediate need and addressing a greater need, Jesus announces the greatest need. The greatest need. I want you to consider what happens to this man. A bunch of things happen to him. First, he finds out that his neighbors don't really know what he even looks like, despite seeing him every day as they walk past him. And then his own mother and father are brought before the local leaders, and they basically throw him under the bus. They say, yeah, he's our son, but we can't really vouch for that story he's telling. If he's going to stick to that whole Jesus thing, he's on his own. Thanks, mom and dad. And then his community, his religious leaders essentially say, hey, tell us that Jesus sinned or we're going to throw you out. Throw you out of not just the center of weekly worship, but the center of all of community life. And then they do. They kick him out. And so the man goes from being a beggar, depending on the mercy of his parents and his community, to being a complete outcast like that. But now he can see. And he has Jesus. Let's read the next section, another section of the text together. This is verses 35 through 39. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Amen. The word of God. Verse 35 is interesting, isn't it? Jesus heard that they'd thrown the man out, and he found him. He found him. Jesus goes and seeks him out, and he restores him. He'd already restored him physically. But Jesus restores him mentally and socially and most importantly of all, spiritually. 
This week I read about an MIT professor from New Delhi. His name is Pawan Sina. He is a world-renowned expert on vision and neuroscience. This is a really smart guy. And he has a program, it's called Project Prakash. That word Prakash means light in Sanskrit. And so far, he has helped nearly 500 children who were born with severe cataracts to see. He's come up with this wonderful procedure. And the research that he's been doing on how these kids learn how to see after they've been basically born blind, it's huge. It's shaping our understanding, not just of how we see, but of how we learn and how our brains work and how computers can process visual data. A lot of really high, t- high stuff, and, you know, important stuff, groundbreaking stuff. But Dr. Dr. Sinas says this. He says the biggest happiness is those 500 kids. And then he goes on and he says, if he can expand his work, he says there are about 250,000 more kids that he thinks can be treated with this procedure in India alone. He believes that he can cure a large percentage of India's blind children. India is one of the worst places for childhood blindness. But for now, it's pretty much focused only on kids. And there's a reason for that. You you see, there have been several adults who've gone through this procedure, and they've been given sight too after being uh, born nearly blind as well. But almost always, adults can't adjust after the procedure. There's initial euphoria and joy, but it's almost invariably followed by severe mental health battles. As one study put it, some threaten to tear out their eyes or simply continue to act blind. Some are so depressed that they die. Isn't that terrible? And Dr. Cena says that the problem is information, too much information. They see everything, and then their minds have a hard time knowing where one thing starts and another thing ends. The world is just one big messy patchwork collage, and so shadows look like objects. And so he says the kids have an easier time learning how to filter information out and focus, especially as they see different objects move. The adults have a much harder time. Well, it's a, a cool story, and there's much more to it, but I want to relate it to, to our story in Scripture today. And you know what I find interesting in the blind man's encounter with Jesus? Jesus heals this man and radically changes both his eyes and his mind. He can see the world immediately and clearly. But he only sees who Jesus is gradually, bit by bit by bit. Kind of like those Indian children whose minds must learn how to see the world for the first time. 
in our text, I want you to see a kind of a progression in this man's life. To his neighbors, to his neighbors, when he's asked about this whole healing from Jesus, he says, the man called Jesus healed him. The man called Jesus. And then later, when the Pharisees start debating, he says of Jesus, he is a prophet. And then after the, the Pharisees start yelling and accusing him, yelling at him and accusing him, he ups it. And he says, this man was from God, clearly. And then as the pressure grows, his understanding grows. The Pharisees throw him out of the synagogue. And that's when he finally, for the first time, sees Jesus himself. And then there's this wonderful, powerful exchange. Jesus says to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Essentially, he is saying to this blind man, the authorities have thrown you out. But do you believe in the one whom the prophet Daniel says is given all authority, whose kingdom will not pass away? That title, Son of Man, was very significant to these first century Jewish people. When they heard that title, Son of Man, they knew it was a reference to the Messiah. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And what does the man answer? Well, who is he, sir? Tell me, I want to believe in him so that I might believe in him. And then Jesus says what? You have seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you right now. I'm right here, buddy. Here I am. What is Jesus saying? When you were blind. When you were blind, you heard my voice. Now, you know, next week, by the way, when we get into chapter 10, Jesus is repeatedly going to refer to this theme. The sheep hear the shepherd's voice and listen. He knows them and they follow him. But now, for the first time, Jesus says to this guy, you have seen me. The light of the world, the son of man who appeared to Daniel in a vision. The man who has been blind said what? Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He sees something that at that point, even Jesus' closest disciples hadn't seen. They hadn't worshiped him yet. Then Jesus says, for judgment I've come into this world. Verse 39. So that the blind will see. And those who see will become blind. He's talking about broken people coming to know him. And he's talking about arrogant people who say, I can see already. They really can't. What is the greatest need of all? The greatest need for all. It is to see Jesus. To truly see him. Not just to hear his words. Not just to merely agree with some of his teachings or principles. The greatest need for each of us is to fully see Jesus for who he is. The light of the world. The great I am. The son of man. Our savior. Our lord. Our leader. Our life changer. Friends, we must see him fully for who he is, or we really don't see him at all. 
That's the position we're in. Many years ago, in the year 1820, there was a little girl who was totally blind. She was blinded as an infant just at six months old as a result of a tragic accident. But she lived to be 94 years old. In fact, she became an icon of the American church. A prolific author and lyricist, she wrote more than 8,000 hymns and gospel songs with more than 100 million copies printed. Folks, that's long before the internet, long before downloads. Wow, you would recognize many of her works. Blessed assurance. Jesus is tenderly calling. Praise him, praise him. Rescue the perishing. And to God be the glory. Those are just a few. Some publishers were hesitant to have so many hymns by one person in their hymnal, and so she used more than 200 different pseudonyms during her career. She was a hymn-writing machine. Her name, Fanny Crosby. But I want you to hear what she wrote when she was just eight years old. A poem. Oh, what a happy child I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind? I cannot. And I won't. Isn't that remarkable? The wisdom of an eight-year-old child. A blind child. But though she was blind, she could truly see Jesus. Her greatest need had been met. And it wasn't physical healing, which, by the way, she never experienced. But a heart in tune with the Savior. And friends, my prayer is that it would be for you and for me as well. And for all of those that we encounter as we meet immediate needs. And as we point people to their greatest need. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of your word, which is living and true and real. Father, we thank you for the evidence we see of eyes being opened every day as people come to understand who you are and what you can do in our lives. Father, for those of us here that have experienced being born again and knowing you truly and fully and having our spiritual eyesight open, Lord, we thank you for that greatest of all privilege. Father, for those that are here that are somewhere on that journey of not yet fully having their eyes opened, Lord, we pray that your word would do its work that your spirit would move in powerful ways and that we might have an opportunity to help one another in this spiritual journey. Bless us this day, Father. Bless us 
with eyes that see. Father, open our eyes to the immediate needs around us. Father, give us boldness and diligence to step out in faith and meet needs so that we might help people and point them toward their greatest need. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, each week as we close up the service, I always let you know that some of our elders are here to pray for you. I see that Brother Peter Wolf is back there.